You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you will be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, More Than They Asked For, based on the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 through 22, recorded on Sunday, May 28, 2017. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. You know, I have to clear up something at the beginning of this message. Um, uh, some of you have heard the call that, that, that I asked everyone in the church to, to, to invite a friend to church this year. And that is close but not correct. I didn't say that. I am saying that it is time for everyone who's committed to Jesus Christ and, and Harvest Community Church as their home church, whether you're a member or not yet a member, to grow the church by one. It's not the same as inviting. I found that you can invite someone, they may not come. Or you can invite someone and they will come two years later. So it takes a lot of invites to get one person to actually show up. But then when they visit, I have found that sometimes people who visit the church only visit once. And then they don't come back again. You may have to to get five of your friends or people you know to come to visit before one of them actually says, you know what? I want to be here. So the goal for all our campuses is for each one person to grow harvest by one person. You might say, well, how do I get those people here? That's up to you. How many do I have to invite? Invite all you can. Get as many lines in the water as you can. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. And that was before it was politically incorrect to say men. I guess he'd have to say, I will make you fishers of men and women. Or I'll make you fishers of them. Now he wouldn't. He'd probably still say men. But you have to get the lines in the water. You have to invite. I remember one time back when I was in college, I was in a fellowship, and we said, let's have this one week where we all try to invite one person to our fellowship group, and we're going to preach the gospel. And so we all worked really hard and met the challenges, and just about everyone brought someone. And I remember my one friend Paul brought his roommate from the dorm, and his roommate gave us like, to Christ and almost in tears he looked at his friend Paul and says you've been coming to this all semester and you never invited me you know you just assume don't let fear take you over we want to grow the church why because God loves people and we're here to help them get saved people came rushing up to Jesus when he was right there we can't produce Jesus, but we can produce his message, and the invisible Holy Spirit of God will work on a heart through you, if we'll do that. Our text today uh, is from Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22, where you're going to see Jesus getting a question. The people are surrounding Jesus. If you have your Bible, open it to Mark 2, 18 to 22. Um, People are surrounding Jesus because he's teaching his wonderful message as the Son of God, and he's healing people, Um, and, 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 and some people come up and scratch their heads, I think, and ask him a question. Um, so here we are, verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. John's, that would be John the baptizer. Perhaps his head hasn't been cut off yet. Or maybe they're still saying, well, I still follow the teachings of John the baptizer, even though he's not here. And the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Why, why is that? Um, fast means to not eat, so you can dedicate time to prayer. Fasting is about 
uh, sorrow. It's associated with sorrows of depriving yourself of earthly pleasure so you can seek God and say, God, I need you. Um, the, the, the law does not call for many fasts. The Jews only had one fast day in their calendar. But the Pharisees would fast twice a week anyway. And we don't know how John's disciples fasted and prayed, but apparently they did. So these people were watching the way spiritual leaders were observing their faith, why they were doing their religion. Just like you can observe how Christians do their religion today. You go to one church and they serve communion every week. You go to another church, they serve it once a month. Um, you know, you, the people, they were watching to see how others were doing it. And we're not told who these people are who asked Jesus, but, but I kind of like the question. It has an honest feel to it. A lot of times people ask Jesus a question and it's a trap. I don't think this is a trap. I think they're saying, we're trying to figure this out. I mean, they could have been critical or they could have been honest, but they're saying, look at the holiness that these people are fasting and praying and listening to John, the weird guy who ate bugs. And then we take the Pharisees, who are the official religious leaders of our nation, and twice a week they fast and their disciples fast. But we've been watching your disciples and they're putting on a little bit of weight. They're kind of getting portly out there. <laughs> they're just chowing down, chicken dinners. And, 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 and why is that? I, I think the, the, the question of why do you practice your faith like that is really a way of saying who's right. Is John right? Are the Pharisees right? Are you right? When I was... Uh, a Christian for several years, after a while, I began to be very troubled by the same question. Have you ever been troubled by the very question, who's right? Who's right? How do I know my faith is right? Christians can ask that question. Who's, who's got this thing? Is it the Roman church? The Vatican? You know, if you join the Roman church, um, you don't have to think. They got popes and rules, all kinds. They got rules coming. That's, that's the faith of my birth. They got rules coming out of their rules, but you don't have to make up. They just say, if the church says it, it's so. Boom, light a candle. Thank you. Are they right? You know, that's what they're asking. Are the Pharisees doing this right? Then you, you know, I became a Christian and I was saying, is it the Eastern Orthodox Church? Is it the, you got the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Baptists and the Pentecostals and the, and the television show preachers and, and Who's right? Has that ever bugged you? Who's actually got the right thing? Or am I alone here? I think that's kind of what they're asking. By the way, I'm not going to answer that today, but I'll give you a hint because I'm at peace with this. Study church history. The answer is there. It really helps. But in any case, they're asking Jesus, which one of you is doing religion the right way? And Jesus is not going to give them a simple answer about fasting. He's not going to say, oh, they're fa- we, we're going to fast, but later. Or we fast when you're not looking. <laughs> or, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't say, well, you should only fast during the summer solstice. He doesn't give him any rules about fasting. In fact, he doesn't talk much about fasting at all. Instead, he begins with fasting and he expands. He answers them with three illustrations. So this is a big answer to a little question. You know, guy who asks it's probably like, I just want to know when I'm supposed to eat and not eat. And Jesus gives three different illustrations. And these illustrations stretch beyond what I think anyone in the audience there could understand at at that moment. So let's look at those three answers. Here they are. Number one, in verse 19, he said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. That was one. Number two, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old, the worst tear is made. And the third, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. He gives three illustrations. There's a lot in these. What's in common to all three? I'm going to answer the question, in case you're wondering. (laughs) They're all couplets of things that don't live well together, right? The first one is fasting versus feasting. Because fasting is something, really, it's associated with sorrow, with deprivation, with having not what you want, unsatisfaction. And, 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 and I'm giving up the pleasures of the world. Well, if you're, if you're preparing for a wedding and you're there to be there with the groom and, and it's time for feasting and partying leading up to and after and you say, I'm just going to wear sackcloth and ashes and uh, not eat and I'm the best man, you're kind of out of place. Those two don't go together. There's a time to fast and a time to feast. Right? Jesus, we know, is saying there's no need for my boys to, to, to... The reason you fast is because you feel God's too far away. I'm sad. Visit me. I don't know what to do. Tell me. I've sinned. Forgive me. Come closer to me. Well, they don't need to do that. The bridegroom is with them. I'm here with them. What are they... <laughs> are they going to just not eat and say, would you talk to me? I'll eat. I'll talk to you while you eat. Have some ice cream. I don't know if they had ice cream. I know, right? They, and it would be, it would probably be about two and a half more years before he teach them they could go ahead and have bacon, but they had Jesus. The second illustration of two things that don't go together is you got an old garment and an unshrunk cloth. Um, you know, is that, that's, a, that's an interesting one. You, I don't sew anything, but apparently if you have a very old one and and you take a, 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 new, a new patch and put it on there. Um, clothes are very easy to come by in our world. They're very inexpensive to make. The Industrial Revolution and cheap labor and lots of materials. And, and, and I've been all over the world. I've been some of the poorest places in the world. And most of those places, clothes are abundant. Anyone can get t-shirts. You can go anywhere in the world. <laughs> you can go to India and see a guy with a Pittsburgh Steelers coat on. And I, where did you get that? He, doesn't, he can't even read it. Um, <laughs> But their clothes were, were more valuable. And so uh, you might have to wear the same two sets of clothes for years. And, and, uh, but you wouldn't take a new cloth to fix something old, right? Um, the, the, uh, if you take, what's Jesus saying there? If you take the, the, the way, if you try to follow me, Jesus is saying, like you, and, and then go follow the Pharisees, you're going to shred their religion. You're going to shred it. Because I'm the new cloth, they're the old cloth. And, and it's, they're not going to live together. And then the third he gives is old wine skins and new wine. Uh, those two don't go together, apparently. I don't make wine, but um, if you pour new wine as it ferments and expands, 
uh, the, that nice skin will expand with it, unless it's an old wine skin and it's all dried out, and then it busts. So if you pour following Jesus into the Pharisaical religion, it's not going to hold. Right? So these are the three pictures he gives. Those who asked the question, I don't think they were looking for those answers. Those are huge. They're like, should we eat or not eat? That's all I want to know. The answer Jesus gives is much bigger than the question. So what I'd like to do is look at the larger context. Beginning in verse 20. Uh, This is a good note-taking one. (laughs) If you're a note-taker, you're going to love me. Um, There's going to be a lot that you can write down. So let's look at the beginning. The very first one, verse 20, says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Let's start there, because that has nothing to do with their question. It's, It's introducing a whole new set of ideas that, think about it, no one sitting there or standing there would have any idea what he's talking about. Right? We know... Well, let's not act like what we know. Let's pretend we're them. And they're hearing, huh, Brian, who's the groom here? Is Jesus the groom? Are you a groom? Who are you marrying? Who's the wife? Is it, you know, is it Mary? Or is it Mary? Or Mary? Or Mary? Or Mary? Because all the ladies are apparently named Mary in the New Testament. And, and, then, and, then, and then it says, and then you're going to be taken away. Are you going to be kidnapped? This isn't going to make sense to them. But he tells it to them anyway. The time's going to come when my followers are going to fast. And he's not really speaking so much about fast and then not eating. Although I'm sure they do that too. He's talking about sorrow. Right now I'm with them. They're happy. Time's going to come. I'm not going to be with them. They're not going to be so happy. Jesus is foreshadowing the cross. He's foreshadowing the death. I, I, I... If you stop and imagine the amount of sorrow that would have come to the followers of Jesus two and a half years later on what we call Good Friday, when they saw their Savior hung on the cross, I think it's greater than, it would be akin to the worst kind of sorrows on earth, akin to finding out someone very close to you had suddenly died. I mean, it would be horrible. It'd be like being a relative of one of those people in Manchester. Your little girl goes to a concert and she's blown up. I, mean, I think the horror is like that. Uh, um, the night before Jesus died, listen to what he said to the twelve. Now, they didn't know he was going to die, even though it was going to happen within 24 hours. So Jesus said to them, and I'm going to break in to this sentence in John 16, 19. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. What a contrast. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It's really hard to turn the worst sorrow into joy in an instant. But there's one way, and here's an illustration Jesus gives. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, 
but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Here we get this, this, pictures, this picture he's given them. You're, you're not going to be ready for what's about to happen. You're not going to be ready for this hero who's been walking with you, who's been untouchable, who can do miracles, who's proved to you he is the Son of God, he is the Messiah, whom you love with all your heart. You're not going to be ready for what's about to happen because I'm going to get arrested. You're going to get scared and run off. They're going to they're humiliate me, spit on me, pull out my beard, thorns in the head, strip me naked and nail me to a cross, and I'm going to die there. And the Romans are going to get the last laugh, and they'll literally laugh and spit in my face, and so will the Pharisees who hated my guts. You're not going to be ready for that. I'm gonna, the Son of God is going to be publicly destroyed in front of your face. Imagine someone, the person you love most on the earth, being publicly destroyed like Jesus was. Imagine that right now. The person you, you care about most, and you had to sit and watch that. You're not ready for that kind of sorrow. And Jesus is saying, that sorrow's going to be coming. He's warning them. They're probably like, what's he talking about? But don't worry, it's only for a little while. It's only for a little while. You, you won't see the other part coming either. On Sunday, I'm going to get up. On the third day, he rose from the dead. On the third day, he rose with a healthier body and all the power he always had. On the third day, all your sorrow turns to joy. A good thing to remember as you push through the sorrows of life. God doesn't promise you that there'll be a drum roll before the sun comes up. So don't quit. The joy could be just around the corner. What was the question? How come your disciples fast? Don't fast. How come your disciples don't fast? That was the question. This is the answer. Oh, they will. Because I'm going to be taken away from them. His answer goes all the way to the cross. You see that? Why, why does Jesus do this? Why in a simple question about a simple discipline of fasting and prayer does he foreshadow him being the bridegroom who dies for the bride without explanation? He goes all the way to the cross. He gave an answer that no one standing there would understand at that moment, but some would later. The answer, why does he do that? Listen, because the message of the gospel is always central to his mission. The telling of the good news is the means of transmission of the most powerful force in the universe. The human vocal cords and tongue and mouth and teeth and breath bringing out a message of the death and resurrection and ascension and return of the Christ for the forgiveness of sins of the world, that being transmitted by human lips is the means of transferring the most powerful force in the universe. And it's not electricity and it's not nuclear. It is the power that can take a dead soul, lost in sin, ready for punishment in hell, wash it clean, and make you born again. Declaring the cross is the power to save sinners. What do we say when we take communion? We, 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 uh, these words, this, this wine is the new covenant in my blood. And by this, we declare his death 
until he comes. So that's his first, his first picture. Do you see how it goes a lot farther than just when should I eat and when should I pray? His second's the cloth and the wine, or second and third. And, I, and I'm kind of throwing them together because they're very similar, right? Now the cloth, I was thinking about that cloth. I was thinking, what if I only had two sets of clothes and I had to wear them for three years? And uh, my wife will tell you, sometimes I'll wear the same pair of jeans for six days, so it's kind of like that, but... <laughs> But I can get all the clothes I want. And, and you can too. And if they rip, you just toss them. Very few people fix them anymore, right? Used to be when you said, I got to darn these socks, somebody would actually fix them. Now, it's like I got a whole darn these socks and you go buy some more. I mean, it's a whole different idea. But often they would have one or two sets of clothes. If you had a coat, it might have to last you 30 years. So you may have a eight-year-old pair of pants with a rip and you're going to value that. So you're going to go get a cloth, and what you're going to do is try to make that cloth old before you tie it onto there. Because if you leave it like it is, when it shrinks, it's just going to pull that old stuff apart. That's, that's the one picture. And likewise with the wine. If you, I never poured new wine into an old wine skin. I, they don't use skins these days, do they? They use bottles. So maybe that's why. Hey, these skins don't work. Let's use bottles. But apparently it would break them. What? What is he talking about? I don't think he's talking about the simple, the simple discipline of not eating for a day, and fasting and prayer. Are you with me? He's pointing to something much bigger. <laughs> till now, the Jews, till now being when Jesus is there, not today, were guided by the law of Moses given to them 2,000 years before at Sinai. Right? And, and, and the laws of Moses were many. Go back and read um, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you'll see there's a lot, a lot of laws in there. And, and, and those laws could be categorized in many ways. I'm going to give you three categories and here's where my note-taking friends, if you're not a note-taking friend, I really think it's important if you're going to understand the Bible that you better memorize this. <laughs> Get this. There are three categories of laws in the Old Testament. Moral laws, right? Like the Ten Commandments. Right and wrong. Thou shalt not steal. It's moral. It's immoral to steal. There are civil laws, which is how the government is to settle disputes among the people, crime and punishment sort of things. If your ox gores my servant, you owe me this. If you were negligent, the punishment is this. There's civil laws, just like we have to govern us in the United States of America. If you park in the wrong place, they give you a nice fair fine of a billion dollars. If you steal, then this happens. Civil laws. And then ceremonial. Because they're a religious nation, Israel was. And the ceremonial, they're all over the place. They go from from how to, how to behave in the temple, who's allowed to be priests, who's not, how they are supposed to dress, how they are supposed to wash, what they're supposed to eat. This is where they are forbidden. Um, I've heard people say the reason God gave the rule against eating pork was because he, it was about cleanliness and they didn't understand cleanliness in those days. That's really cute, but that's stupid. That's really stupid. <laughs> um, 
he said why. If you cook the pig long enough, you can eat it. Don't eat crustaceans. You know, why not? Don't, don't have uh, a shirt with two different kinds of cloth in it. Why not? Ceremonial reasons. Kill a lamb on this day. Kill a goat on this day. Offer this on that day. And so there were all kinds of laws to be followed. And God says, my nation, known as Israel, living in this place, will follow all three of these categories. And then the the Pharisees, the teachers, they added more rules. They wanted to build a hedge around the laws. Right? Do you know what I mean? They thought, well, if, if, if you can't work on the Sabbath, why don't we make it so you can't even get close to working on the Sabbath? You cannot walk more than 100 yards at a stretch without sitting down. That, that, you'll never do work if you, can, if you have to do that. You may not lift more than one item up to so many pounds. And so they increased the rules, and they had all kinds of rules, But forgetting their rules, which Jesus is always skewering. Is that the right word? Skewer skewer is how you say that. Poking, stabbing. If you just took what Moses said, not a single Jew in the history of Israel ever kept all the ceremonial, civil, and moral laws. Not one. No matter how hard they tried. The Pharisees thought they were better than others because they thought they kept the most. Until Jesus. Jesus kept them all. He never broke a single law of Moses, morally, civilly, or ceremonially. Matthew 5, 17, 18, Jesus says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law or the prophets is the way they would say Bible. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. I didn't come to abolish these these laws God has given you through Moses. I came to do them. They're all going to be accomplished. By who? Jesus accomplished all the laws of Moses for us. All right? Keep that concept in your head forever. He was perfect. You were not. And then Jesus set us free from all those laws. That's what he came to do. So now, he's the new wine. He's going to blow them apart. Let's take a closer look at these three. Hold on to that. Just stick with this. Hold on to that. Let's take a closer look at these three category laws. The moral laws are right and wrong and they never change. They never change. Most people, even without the Ten Commandments, can guess them. They're whatever you don't want people to do to you. Don't murder me. Don't steal from me. Don't take my wife or my husband. Right? Kids, don't talk back to me. They are always right or wrong according worshiping other gods is always wrong worshiping god is always right murdering people is always wrong adultery is always wrong stealing is always wrong dishonoring your parents is always wrong 
For Christians, you are free from those laws. That's a wild one. I told you it's a note-taking sermon. You're going to have to think. What do I mean free? I mean you're forgiven. You don't have to keep all those laws in order to get to heaven. You're forgiven. Well, then why? It means I don't have to do them. Oh, no. For Christians, you obey them all the more. But your motive changes. Listen, what I'm telling you is gospel truth that I can, if I had the time, could show you all over the scripture. I just want you to take my word for it now, and we can argue later if you don't find it in the scripture. We keep the moral law even more because we're free from it. Because the motive has changed. What was the motive before Christ? Fear of punishment. If I don't do this, God's going to whack me. Or the government will. Or my mom. Or all three. Mom, government, God. Bam, bam, bam. That's a bad day. But perfect love casts out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. All the punishment that you deserve for breaking the moral laws, which you all broke, and me, was placed on Jesus, who never broke a one. My motive for keeping them is no longer fear of punishment. What is it? It's the Spirit of God now lives in me because I believe in Christ. If you believe in Christ, His Holy Spirit's in you, and now you don't obey them for fear of punishment. You obey them because you think, dang, these are cool. It's better to say you're sorry when you blow it. I feel better about not stealing anymore. I love honesty. Integrity makes me happy in myself. God lives within, and in a way, his moral law now is inside you instead of outside of you. And those laws are really not laws. They're the path of love. Let me show you from the scripture. Ready? Ezekiel 36 prophesies this. And it's about Jesus, and it's about you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. No one wants anyone around with a heart of stone. And I will give you a heart of flesh, meaning a living heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk. Walk in my statutes. What happens when the Spirit of God comes in you? He is now motivating you to walk in His morality and to be careful to obey His rules. And just in the New Testament, Paul tells us, for those who are in Christ, the old has passed away, the new has come. You are a new creature. And then in Romans, look what Paul says. This is beautiful. Worthy to be carved into every wall. Painted on every car. Written in the sky. Put in marble. Tattooed on your back. Whatever. Owe no one to anything except to love each other. For the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Who fulfills the law? Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law but to... Help me. Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law but to... Is anyone in the room with me, or am I alone? Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The one who loves fulfills the law. Jesus fulfilled it. Now he's in me. For the commandments, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't commit murder, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't covet. Notice they're all moral. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love fulfills the law. 
the moral law we embrace, because it really is this as simple as saying this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But do I got to memorize a bunch of laws? No, memorize this with your imagination. How would you like it if I did this to you? And you'll be able to figure out the rest. Jesus, you can write this down here as a fill in the blank. Jesus taught his disciples that we only have one rule. Talk about new wine into old wineskins. These Pharisees were good at rules. Jesus says, I'm going to erase them all. We're going to go with one rule. Love one another. Of course, the one before that is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, but you can write that in the margin. Love one another. There is no need for any other law, for love never wrongs a neighbor. So that's the moral laws and the Christian, but what about the civil laws and the Christian? In the Old Testament, what about all those civil laws? Those are for, listen, those are for governing a nation called Israel, right? They are not needed to be applied any longer. What do I mean? God has determined that each nation needs to govern itself under him, whether they agree or not. He has given the sword to each nation. He has governments set up their own civil laws. America has civil laws and Russia has civil laws. They have a penal code. They, you do this, we do that. You better behave this way. The civil laws of the Old Testament were meant for, the, for Israel in the time before Christ. Because Israel has not governed itself since. Um, you might say, well, they're governing themselves now. Not with a king and not in God's way because they have rejected the Christ. The Israel of God today is really a nation of believers. You are the Israel of God. The Israel of God is no longer geographical in one region over by the Mediterranean Sea. It is in every nation. It's not one ethnicity. You're not just the Cohens and the Epsteins. It is, it, is, it is different colored and, and different named and different cultured. The, the Israel of God is every believer in every place and it's scattered around the globe and ethnicity has nothing to do with it. And this, therefore the civil laws of Israel are now obsolete. In fact, you could say that the new civil laws are the, king, the ones of the kingdom of God and maybe you could say the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount replaces them all. But I'm not going to go that far yet. So we don't have to, so if, what's this mean? It means if someone's caught in adultery, you don't have to go out with rocks and, and kill them. The Bible says do it. Yeah, if you're in Israel and you are part of the Israeli government before Christ, you should do that. But are you? No, so don't. Those are obsolete. However, in studying these laws, there is great wisdom. What about the ceremonial laws of the Bible? How should the Christian interact with them? Well, they're fulfilled. You don't interact with them at all. No longer is circumcision needed. You seem to do it a lot anyway. <laughs> no longer does it matter. If you, you, you can eat bacon now. I, I saw some Christian whack job on the television years ago saying, what God really wants is us to eat like the Hebrews because that's a clean way to eat. Okay. To which I could say, he may or may not be a Christian, but liar, liar, pants on fire. It's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean. It's what comes out. 
No more do you need the temple. There is no temple in Jerusalem and there doesn't need to be a temple. I've heard of Christians saying, we got to help the Jews build their temple again to usher in the end times. Don't waste a dime on it. Because if they build a temple, what are they going to start doing in there? They're going to start slaughtering Passover lambs and other kind of lambs to cover sins. And it's every one of them will be an insult to God's lamb, Jesus Christ. You see, that was all just a shadow. Jesus is the temple. He walked next to the thing and said, tear this temple down, I'll rebuild it. In three days. And they said, this building, whoa, what are you talking He was talking about himself. Jesus is the temple. That's just a symbol. All that blood spilled in the temple, a symbol of him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The priests in all their cleanliness, they don't have to wear those clothes anymore. The old garment, the new cloth, You don't have to be kosher. Pour that into your old wineskin. Jesus is undoing an entire nation in A.D. 30. You can see what a threat he was to them. When he said, you pour this in that wineskin, it's going to blow apart. He wasn't kidding. He's a revolutionary. He's turning Israel upside down. Those were shadows. Look what the Bible says. In Colossians, Paul writes to us, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They were a shadow. It's as if Jesus was in heaven before he got here. And the entire ceremonial law was one big shadow coming off of him. And when he got here, who needs the shadow? If I'm, you know, if you get married, who wants to marry a shadow? I'll take the person. You have the shadow. There's no need for a temple, a sacrifice. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And and, and it's important that you understand these three ways of the law because there's a lot of people um, who argue today as if, as if, if you read the Bible literally, you'll come to the truth. There are people who say, well, the Bible says a man should not lie with, with a, a man as with a woman because it's an abomination in the Old Testament. But it also says you can't have two different kind of cloths, two different kind of uh, materials. It also says you've got to stone this person for having adultery. Are you going to stone people? Are you having two different kind of cloths? See, you're disobeying. To which you say, for goodness sake, quit getting all your data off of somebody's website and read the Bible for yourself. Right and wrong never change. They never change. It's never okay to have sex with anybody in any way, visually, imaginatively, physically, who's not of the other sex, and there are only two, and you have to be married. And that's what the Old Testament says, and that's what the New Testament says. This nonsense about the cloth, that's ceremonial. And it's, you don't have to do it. As for the civil laws, there is no punishment for adultery in our society. So I'm not a cop. I'm not going to come throw stones at your head and say, God told me to do it. This isn't Israel. We have to be intelligent people, even if our critics give us foolish arguments. I want to bring this to a close now. Um, Really, there's a thousand applications. 
Um, this is the kind of stuff I really love because <laughs> I love watching the big picture move throughout the Bible. But for the sake of time, I'm only going to give you three. One, and listen to this sermon again. I don't normally say that, but especially if some of these concepts are newer to you. Listen to it again. Think about it. If you have questions, ask me. Email me. Uh, it's a great way to have a theological question come to me. Don't wait to see me on Sunday, Friday, whenever. Email me. But listen to it again and think through these things. Second, be guided by the truth of Scripture, carefully studied, not by the traditions of religion. Right? Not by the traditions of religion. We do this too. I've had people say, well, I'd go to your church, but you don't have communion every week. And I think Jesus said, have communion every week. Did Jesus say have communion every week? Did he, anybody? If he did, I didn't see it. He says, as often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. How often are we supposed to do it? Some say, well, you've got to do it every week or you're not. Really? Why? Read the scripture. Look for the real Jesus and his real teachings. Stick with the new wine. Drink wine! I just wanted to say that in church. I was never allowed to say that as a Baptist. It's a joke. Kind of true, but... Third, let the command to love one another be your daily religious guide. Every time you get lost in your faith, every time you feel far from God, every time you're trying to figure it out, just stop and say, okay, what's the one rule? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love's concern is always for the good of the other, even if it causes them pain. (laughs) Because sometimes pain then leads to pleasure. But love may cost me. If I want the good of you, it may cost me. It may cost me financially. It may cost me of my time. It may cost me of my emotions. You know, love is the reason to serve in VBS. Love is the reason to serve in children's ministry. Love is the reason to serve your husband if you're married, your wife if you're married, your children. Love is the reason to honor your parents if you're not, if you're a kid. Let, let love be your daily guide. And of course, most of all, those three applications, if you have yet to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to make sure I've been clear in case, I know I declared the death and resurrection, but can I make sure I'm clear enough that he gives an invitation that all who believe in him will not be condemned but have eternal life? Have you let go of your life and repented of your sin and given your life to Christ yet? If not, why wait? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.